welcome again to Back to the Future Minute, the daily podcast where we analyze the movie Back to the Future, part two, one still credits rolling minute at a time. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez in the news. That was uh, not that was not correct English, uh, but I don't know how else to talk about uh, <laughs> the credits. I don't want to do credits filled minute. Oh, I thought you were talking about what I said. I was like, I'm Nick Jimenez in the news. I say that every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Me. <laughs> okay. What I said I waited until you said your thing before I I, I uh, criticized my own thing. Um, so yeah, so today we are going back to minute one hundred and six, uh, which starts with the credit for associate editor Peter Lonsdale, and ends with the visual effects coordinators. Cool. And uh, so for this for this minute, I looked up uh, a few more credits. And uh, the first thing that I did, I love uh, sound design and sound editors. Now, yes. what I what I thought was interesting about this, there are no sound designers credited. Interesting on this episode, so, or on this on this uh, on nope. this movie, um, because you know uh, Ben Burt is like one of the best in the business. Oh, he's a legend. Yeah, uh, he did all the Star Wars movies and everything. So I, wow. I really. Yeah, so I like I like looking up uh, sound designers, but yeah, there are no sound designers on this. So I looked up instead. There are two supervising sound editors. Okay, uh, and I just assume that being supervisor, they're probably supervising like foley work and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would like to think so. So I looked up both of them, and the first one is Lewis L. Edelman. And Lewis L. Edelman started as a sound effects editor uh, on used cars. Amazing. Yep. And he went on and he did Cat People and E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Flashdance, Romancing the Stone. Uh, He's done An American Tale. Oh. Three Amigos, Lost Boys, Running Man. Empire of the Sun, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, My Stepmother is an Alien. Wow, so he's uh, so he's he's worked with Zemeckis almost like half a dozen times. Yeah, but not Back to the Future. Interesting. He did not do Back to the Future, but he did do uh Back to the Future 2 and 3. Okay. Yeah. He also did Little Mermaid. Oh. Yeah. He did City Slickers, Rocketeer, there's Rocketeer again, Hook, there's Hook again. Uh Mighty Ducks. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and then, let's see, recently, he did Doug's first movie. <laughs> Doug's only movie. <laughs> he, yeah. That's, reminds me of that joke the, uh, when the, when, uh, on the Daily Show when the Pokemon, the first movie, came out. Uh, I remember there was a joke on the Daily Show where he said, uh, or John Stewart said, uh, which, depending on who you are, is either a promise or a threat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so Doug's first movie reminds me of the same yeah. thing. Um uh-huh. but yeah, he he kind of moved into cartoons cuz he did Pocahontas 2, Doug's yeah. first movie, Elmo and Grouchland, The Tigger movie, Recess Schools Out, uh Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, and then uh that's it. Looks like he retired in 2002. Well, good for him. That's a that's a full that's a I mean, that, there's some legendary films on that. Oh, yeah. Some legendary sure. sounds on that list. Definitely. Uh, then the other guy, the other uh, supervising sound editor, mm-hmm. was Charles L. Campbell, 
who worked on a lot of the same stuff, honestly. Um, he had another really long career, but he started before uh, he started before Lewis mm-hmm. because he started in the 60s. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's been working since 1965 as a sound editor. Um, what were some and, of his early credits in the 60s? Anything that, that, that's, that, that stood the test of time? I'm trying to see. That darn cat? I'm not really seeing anything. in. The, it's mostly TV stuff mm. in the 60s. And I'm not recognizing a lot of it. So like the outer. Oh, so like, was it kind of like sci-fi sounding stuff or just like sitcoms? A lot of documentaries. Oh, interesting. Yeah, a lot of documentaries and TV specials. Uh, the first thing that I see that I really recognize, he he also okay. From 1965 to 1971, he was the special effects editor of uh, National Geographic, the interesting uh, the documentary series. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he did that, um, and then he was the sound effects editor for "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Oh wow! And uh, and used cars again with uh, with with Lewis, uh, "Romancing the Stone," "Breakfast Club," amazing. Um. Three Amigos. Yes. Uh, yeah, there's – it's a lot of uh, – it looks like uh, him and uh, uh, him and Lewis were partners in crime for, for quite a while. But eventually Lewis went to animation probably because he wanted an easier like nine-to-five job. Sure. And uh, 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 Charles went on to continue with Spielberg and did Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal. And then he – it looks like he stopped in 2004 with the terminal and then came back in 2008 to do the Grammy Awards. Oh. <laughs> and then hasn't had a, a credit since then. Interesting. Yeah. What a, yeah, what a great – I'm very interested to – I would love to like sit down and talk to either of them and kind of be like, like you know, the, did they meet Zemeckis in film school? You know what I mean? Like I wonder how you get – hired on like the ground level you know on like something like i want to hold your hand you know what i mean i don't know here's something really interesting though he has some acting credits oh and and they're all uh for voice credits right so in back to the future he is not he did not work in the sound department for back to the future uh part one Mm -hmm. but uh he is the 1955 radio announcer oh in X-Men First Class. Oh my gosh. He's a news voice. Okay. And he's also a news voice in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Wow. And is the radio announcer in uh, Moonrise Kingdom, as well as the voice of a pharmacist in Chronicle. Wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure he was just like doing like full, like, uh, just, yeah, like, 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 uh, like Foley work or like, what, what's it called? When you when you go in after the fact and like record, record over dialogue, oh, ADR. yeah, like ADR, yeah. I mean, maybe he just has one of those voices, and they're yeah. like, "Oh, just get just get that dude." You know what I mean? Right. Or or he's just these are all movies that maybe like his uh, his students, you know, work are are now working on, and they're just like, "Oh, let's just go get, let's just get, let's just bring Charles in." And yeah, that'd be fun to get Charles's voice to be the vid, you know, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Like they like on a day that he like comes in to like go check out what they're doing, you yeah, know, like, like hey, a do you visiting wanna, day. Yeah, do you want to just come and record like some radio voices? Right. 
He was he was also uh, in Mr. Popper's Penguins. He was old Tom Popper Sr. <laughs> he was Jim Carrey's father. Apparently, yeah. That's amazing. I have, actually haven't seen Mr. Popper's Penguins. I love the book, though. I um, haven't seen it either. It's kind of why I hadn't, didn't see the movie. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's Charles L. Campbell. And then, uh, I want to talk about, um, who is this guy? Did I forget to write him down? Oh no, I didn't. There he is. Uh, Max Clevin, who is the second unit director. Very important job. Yes. Very. Now this guy's interesting because, uh, so first of all, for those of you who don't know, uh, second unit are is basically the second unit director is in charge of um, the second unit of filming, and the second unit typically does things where the actors aren't involved. So, like if they're shooting, like if you're shooting, you need shots of like wheels spinning out or close ups of a hand grabbing something. Usually, that's not the actor; it's usually a double, and they just they just the second unit just films that whenever they have time essentially if you're watching a james bond movie or a jason bourne movie and you see a shot of like a motorcycle you know smashing into a truck that that's usually a a second unit work and stunt people right and and uh on top of that they also do a lot of like wide shots um so like big like scenic shots Mm -hmm. second unit will often do that like establishing shots and stuff because that sort of thing is i mean it's it's boring for like a regular director to do and the and it's not only boring but it's not necessary because there's only so many ways you can shoot stuff like that Mm -hmm. but if you're uh if you're an action if you're a fan of action movies uh one a surprising thing might be you know if, if you think that shooting you know car chases and shootouts and you know buildings getting you know blowing up uh, you might actually have more fun directing second unit than you would directing like main stuff. Right. Uh, one one thing that I have always thought that was interesting about Edgar Wright as a director is he doesn't have a second unit director because yeah. he directs everything. Oh, yeah. And not, not actually an, uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro also like usually does not have second unit work. Right. Um, so I'm always interested in the directors who, who do not have second unit directors. Not to say that there's anything wrong with having a second unit director. Absolutely oh, yeah. not. But – uh, it's always interesting because it's like, oh, okay, I see where you're you, – you are more interested in n- knowing every single frame of this movie backwards and forwards. Yeah. Um, whereas like some directors are like, I'm just looking for a tone or a vibe, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and Zemeckis definitely strikes me as more of that guy. Andy Serkis uh, shot uh, – was the second unit director for the Hobbit trilogy. Right. Yeah, I did. I knew that. Yeah, because he was he needed uh, credit so that he could direct Jungle Book, Mm -hmm. um, which is a movie I'm still not convinced is ever going to happen. Right. Uh, Because, yeah, because because the the Disney Jungle Book was such a big hit. The elephant in the room, no pun intended. Right. Um, Yeah. So anyway, so he was second unit uh, on on Back to the Future 2. He started as a second unit director in a movie which I assume is a black exploitation movie called Cotton Comes to Harlem. <laughs> uh, I, 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 or maybe it's like uh, Hank Hill. No, dad. it's definitely it's definitely black exploitation. Okay. I just looked at the post. I was gonna say it could be about uh, Raymond Hank. Raymond Saint Jacques is the star. Nice. Uh, it also features a character named Gravedigger Jones. Okay. Uh, cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Could also be about uh, Hank Hill's father from King of the Hill taking a, a trip to Harlem. Yeah. Or uh, Lee Schreiber from Scream going to. Uh, <laughs> so this guy uh, has a really interesting career. 
because he does second unit, but he is a stunt guy. And so when he wow. does second unit, he's doing stunts like you talked about. Yes. Right. Uh, he actually started in the 50s. He oh, did wow. uncredited stunt work on Around the World uh, in 80 Days. Oh, yeah. It's and a TV show called Naked City. He was uncredited for looks like 10 years. He went uncredited as just like a regular, like a stunt double, sure. essentially. Uh, and then the first time that he was credited for stunts. Are you ready for this? Yes, go ahead. All right. The first his first credit as a stunt as a stunt performer is in Star Trek. Oh wow. In 1966. So he was probably like a red shirt or like or or maybe even Kirk's stunt double. That's amazing. You know, but he was just he was stunts. That's that's his credit. It's just stunts in Star Trek. What's interesting about stunt uh, stunt people is that um as I went through some stunt people in the credits a lot of them they go like 15 20 years without being credited sometimes yeah 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 they'll just they'll just be you know they'll they'll collect like a day's wages you know what i mean yeah it's yeah. really interesting because that means they don't get any residuals oh yeah no i i have a lot I, I think i think stunt performers and and uh and fight choreographers and that that side of the business are are woefully woefully underappreciated and mm. uh I mean, I, I, I mean, I think they're responsible for so much of like the magic and like the thrills and the the visceral, like you know, kinetic energy that sometimes goes into to movies and and television. Uh, I'm actually of the opinion that there should be absolutely be a, a stunt performance category at the Academy Awards. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so yeah, so he does he does stunts and he would alternate between being uh, one of his last credits as stunts. Sure. Um, was actually uh, Back to the Future, the original. Interesting. Um, and then he eventually he became a stunt coordinator and he coordinated stunts on uh, like Batman Returns and Wild Wild West. Oh wow! Things like that. Nice. And then, um, but yeah, he he was also a second unit guy, uh, and he did second unit for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Back to the Future two and three, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, he was he was credited as the second unit director, along with stunts on Batman Returns. Oh wow! Uh, and he was also the second unit uh, action director on Spider Man, the original Spider Man. Oh, the two thousand two Sam Raimi film. Yeah, some great stunts in that film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, really, uh, really interesting guy. And then this last credit that I wanted to look up, which uh, is the last credit that we're actually going to talk about in the movie, um, is I think really interesting. And it's just because of – yeah. So I'm talking about Mary T. Radford. Okay. Who is uh, credited as – and I looked up all of these assistants and hers was the most interesting. Mary Radford, assistant to Frank Marshall. Oh, wow. Oh, the story she probably has. Yeah. Well, get ready for this, okay. right? So I was always – I'm curious. I, I, I wanted to look up the assistants because I'm like, what are they doing now, right? And so all of the other assistants were assistants to these to, – to like Bob Gale or Zemeckis and they were assistants for like two, three credits and then they fell off the face of the planet, right? So they, mu they must have like – they must have quit the business or yeah. whatever, or right? Eaten. Okay. So – 
Mary Radford became uh, Frank Marshall's assistant in 1984 on Indiana Jones on the Temple of Doom. Damn. Okay. That was the first one. She was then credited as the assistant to Mr. to Mr. Marshall, to Frank Marshall. Um, she has been his assistant since 1984 until present day. Her last credit was last year in Jurassic World as wow. assistant to Mr. Marshall. So she is she is like the like the Cato. Yeah. Like yeah. she knows where all of the bodies are buried. Yeah, she is Frank Marshall's Cato for sure. That's amazing. She has been with this guy for thirty, like thirty-two years at this point. Yeah. Again, like I'm just, I'll just sit. Let's record a podcast with her. I know. You right? know what I mean? And just like, just like, just talk. Just, just. We'll tell you what. I'll just say the name of a movie, and you just say the first story that comes to. There's a great, um, uh, the podcast. Uh, I was there too. Uh, where they, you know, where they interview, um, you know, kind of background characters or minor character actors that were in iconic scenes, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a great, I think, I think I told you about it, but there's a two part episode where they interview, uh, Steven Spielberg's assistant for Raiders. And, uh, and he was just like a friend, he was just like an assistant to Steven Spielberg. And he actually, uh, was an actor on the side and he played the, uh, the paranormal investigator that tears his face off. And poltergeist oh you know what i mean and and yeah. that, that was kind of like his like big like spielberg was like hey you've been, you've been such a good assistant like i want you to be in this movie i think you'd be really good for it and he just had he was in the room where him and steven spielberg and harrison ford and melissa matheson were like walking up to like an editing room for something and uh spielberg was like hey Melissa, I want, I, I'm such a big fan of um, the Black Stallion that, that you were, it's one of my favorite movies of that year. Are, I want to talk to you about a film about a little alien that meets a boy. Oh. He, was, he was in the room where like Steven Spielberg pitched E.T. to Melissa Matheson. And I was like, oh my God, that's the, you know, like witnessing history. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and then the the last like bit of like interesting trivia with with uh, Mary Radford, uh, we're about to watch this movie on uh, on No Roads Edition. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. She was the voice of the hippo in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, let's see. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to remember where the hippo was. Uh, the hippo was in that, I think she, I think she's in the scene where, uh, where, uh, 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 Eddie, uh, Eddie, thank you. Where Eddie is like stumbling around like the back lot where there's like tons of cartoons everywhere. And like, she gets in the way. And like, I, if I remember correctly, she either is like, gets offended or, or is like sort of flirty. With him. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll have to look out for her. Yeah. Yeah. Man, just think about, gosh, she probably, I mean, like Chicago, the Indiana Jones movies. Mm-hmm. Um, man. Yeah. Just what a, yeah. What a, and that, that takes a special kind of person to be an assistant for like that long, you know? Yeah. Cause she's, she's in her fifties at least. Yeah, must be an extremely like trustworthy professional person. And he must pay her well. Oh Yeah. No, to yeah. stay an assistant that long, mm-hmm. you know, she's like the Alfred Pennyworth of, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Screw, screw Cato. She's the, 
<laughs> she's his Alfred. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Let's talk about the 1967 draft, shall we? Shall we? Okay. So we've got, we've got a lot of fun stuff going on, uh, in the 67 draft coming up. Um, I'm really excited to, uh, to talk about the rest of this movie. Yeah. Uh, cause, cause I will say, you know, this movie does a lot of weird stuff. And I think that the stuff that it does the best is the stuff we have yet to talk about. Okay. So where last we left Marty, he was in jail. <laughs> yeah. And for being a, uh, uh, a draft dodger, cause he doesn't, he didn't have his draft card on him. Yeah. Uh, and he was arrested for looking like a hippie. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> the, uh, he, he put in the newspaper that his name is Marty DeLorean and that, uh, you know, so they, they wrote an article about him in the newspaper and he expected Doc to bail him out based on the headline, right? And so somebody bails him out and he's like, all right, Doc, I knew you'd pull it off. And he, so he's in the police station uh, and he's signing a form to leave. And the jail cop hands him back his wallet and he opens it and he says, where's my $300? He's like, it's impounded as evidence. You'll get it back for after your trial if it's really yours. Oh, this is yours too. And he gives him back a nap stack and inside is the sports almanac, right? Okay, yeah. So he still got the almanac because he didn't throw it out, remember? After yes. he got it back, he was like, I'm going to keep this because – Easy money. Easy money. Uh, so he's like, where is he? The guy who paid my bail and the jail co- – Cop goes, Guy, you're a little confused. And a woman says, I paid your bail. And then we meet Lorraine, age uh-huh. 29. And she's in a flower. She looks like a flower child with long, straight hair uh, and a granny dress. And she wears another mother for peace button. Okay. Marty's mouth falls open. And she says, Marty DeLorean, right? I read about you in the paper. I'm Lorraine McFly. And he says, hi, thanks for bailing me out. And uh, the jail cop is like, I hope you know what you're doing because if he skips town, you're going to forfeit the whole $500 uh, that you paid to bail him out. And she's like, oh, I I can tell just by looking at him he wouldn't do that. Mother's instinct. And Marty's like, "Uh whoa. Um, So then uh, Marty and Lorraine are leaving the, the police station. Lorraine says, you seem really surprised by, by all this, Marty. And he's like, yeah, that's one way to describe it. And she says that he, she admires him for resisting the draft. Um, you know, she's, she works with a group of people who are all, uh, you know, really against the draft. And, and you know, they all admire him. And they the think Black he's Panthers. a hero. Yeah. <laughs> they all think he's a hero. And uh, she's like, I have a little boy, David, and he's only five years old, but I'd hate to see him ever go off to war. And Marty's like, don't don't worry about that. And she says, my brother Toby is going to be 18 next year. He might have to go to Vietnam. It would be good for him to talk to you, somebody his own age. Who the hell is Toby? Uh, that would be, uh, that would be the, the guy that was the, uh, in part one, he was the Wonder Years actor with the, oh, yeah, the kind of, the kind of bratty one. Yeah. The one with the, um, uh, Davy Crockett hat yeah, on. Yeah. The coonskin cap. Yeah. The coonskin cap. Um, say it again. Sorry. Yeah. So, so, uh, so yeah, so he's going to be 18 and it would be nice to talk to another, him to talk to another draft dodger his age. 
And he's like, oh, yeah, okay. And he's like, uh, great. In fact, we're having dinner at my folks tonight. Mom wouldn't mind an extra mouth. And Marty's like, well, I should really be going. And he's like, well, I got I got to meet somewhere. And he's like, I'll give you a ride. And he's like, well, it's kind of far out of town. And she's like, uh, you can't leave town. I just paid my bail, your bail money. If you leave town, I will lose all of that money. And, uh, and think of what it will do to the movement. And uh, talking about the anti-war uh, movement, she's like, you'd be setting a terrible example. And Marty says, uh, I think you think I'm something I'm not. <laughs> she says, don't be modest. Um, and now you're joining us for dinner and I won't take no for an answer. So they show up at the Baines home and two small children run up to Lorraine and – uh, and and Marty and it's little Dave age five and little Linda age two and a half. I'm just picturing Wendy Joe Sherber, but like on her knees. <laughs> yeah, little Dave says Linda Linda was bad. She spilled Grandma's juice, and Lorraine says, "Don't be a tattletale, David." And Linda says, "Mommy, Mom, you hit me." Mother, he hit me. And she and he says, "Because you were bad." And she says, "Quiet, the both of you. This is Marty. Uh, these are my children, David and Linda." And Marty's like, "Hi." And uh, Dave asks when daddy's coming back. And Lorraine says a few more weeks. She says, my husband's at Berkeley on a teaching fellowship in literature. He's a writer. Thank God it's just for the semester. These two can be quite the handful. Dave, stop hitting your sister. Sit down, Marty. I'll let, I'll let my mother know you're here. And can I ask, can I ask a really obvious question that will probably just expose my ignorance? Okay. Does, does she not recognize him? We'll as- get there. Okay. We'll get there. okay, cool, cool, cool. Great. Yeah, yeah, we'll Great. get there. Great. Um, so then uh, Linda and, and Dave are like picking on each other. And then finally Marty just grabs little Dave and picks him up and looks him in the eye. And he says, hey, kid, you know what happens to kids who pick on little kids? The brat police come, put them in jail, and then they kill them and feed them to wolves. That's why I'm here. I'm in the brat oh, police. Oh I heard, I heard you've, been, you've been bad. So if you don't behave, I'm taking you away tonight. And then he puts him down and both kids stare at him terrified. And then they both like back away slowly. And he's like, and, and then Marty goes, and remember, never pick on anybody who's smaller than you. And that goes double when they're named Marty. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know what, what I think is interesting about that bit is that I'm like, this isn't, they don't establish Marty and Linda as like people who pick on Marty. Yeah. Like, like Dave kind of rarely, um, they kind of, Dave didn't really even talk to Marty in the first one. Yeah, not really. Like they were just kind of like, they were annoying, but that was just how they were as humans. They weren't really like, it wasn't like a, uh, like a, like a Dudley Dursley situation or like a, a little fat kid from Matilda. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I don't know. It's weird. Um, so now we're in the dining room and everyone sat down for dinner. This is funny. So okay. we've got, we've got uh, Sam and Stella who are now in their fifties. Oh, okay. Got, They're both still alive. Yeah. So we've got Sally. She's 19. Toby is 17. Mm-hmm. Ellen is 11. Linda's in a high chair next to Lorraine. Uh, Dave's on her other side. And then there's one empty place. And, <sighs> Uh, Ellen asks, or wait, who, uh, Lorraine asks, where's Joey? And Ellen, Ellen rolls her eyes and says, he locked himself in his room again. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And then uh, he's just he's just surrounded by like Rorschach drawings and like yeah. And then Ellen says, "Why don't you take?" Or, or Stella says, "Ellen, why don't you take a piece of meatloaf up to Joey?" And Ellen says, "Mom, you know he only eats bread and water when he's up there." <laughs> I want to meet this kid who who locks himself in his room and and, and only eats bread and water. So he's Bane, basically. Uh, yeah. He's like no. I prefer the walls. I want to see the walls <laughs> around me. It's amazing. This uh, really, this really kind of solidifies my theory that like Joey doesn't want to get out of prison. Yeah, he loves it in there. It's where he belongs. Yeah. Uh So yeah. So then there's a there's a whole conversation about how Sam uh, really hates what has become of Lorraine's life, being a hippie and stuff, because sure. obviously he would be not cool about that and it turns out toby is actually all he's ready to join uh the army as soon as he turns 18 yeah, he, he wants can't to wait. kill some Viet Cong. yeah yeah he can't wait uh which is why lorraine's so worried about him um and then <laughs> there's a part where david dave asks mommy do i have to eat these carrots and lorraine says yes you have to eat your carrots and he's like but i don't like carrots and she says eat them anyway and dave says no and then marty leans forward and goes david Eat your carrots now. <laughs> and then it says it says the little boy starts shoving carrots into his mouth as fast as possible. David. Lorraine's really impressed. Eat your goddamn carrots, David. <laughs> eat your carrots now. <laughs> um, and uh, I hope that in this new timeline, like Dave just has like an irrational like fear of being around Marty. Yeah. Or or an irrational fear of carrots. Yeah, or anything. Um, anyone uh, anyone under five four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Ellen asks Lorraine, "Why do you have that string tied around your finger?" And Lorraine says, "Oh, that's uh, so I'll remember to call the Mark Hopkins." And he's like, "What time?" She said, "What time are you leaving Friday?" And Lorraine said, "Actually, I'm canceling it." Um, and it turns out. That uh, the Mark Hopkins was going to be where her and George were going to go for their anniversary weekend to have sort of a second honeymoon. And uh, she's like, but, you know, I, I, I chose to do to, you know, give money to get Marty out of out of jail. And uh, that's just what it's going to be. And then Marty's like, wait a minute. This weekend, nine months would be October, November, December, January, April, May, June. Oh, my God. And then he goes, you got to go, Lorraine. Because um, he <laughs> realizes that uh, uh, Mama's yeah, got to get laid. Yeah, this is when uh, Marty would be conceived. Right. And uh, she's like, I mean, it, it just – it sounds really important. You shouldn't cancel it. And he's like, well, I used all the money to pay your bail. And uh, Stella's like, Sam, why don't we loan Lorraine some money for her anniversary? And Sam's like, we can't afford it. Lorraine's an adult. If she wants to spend her money bailing degenerates out of jail, I'm not going to subsidize her. And uh, Marty's like, look, Lorraine, Mrs. McFly, I I feel terrible messing this up. Why don't you just take me back to jail so you can get your money back and spend the weekend for your husband? Sam says, now that's a good idea. And Toby's like, wow, dad's agreeing with a hippie. Wait till I tell the guys at school. And Sam's like, you shut up. (laughs) What, Lorraine? What? Um, So then uh, Lorraine's like, that's very sweet of you, but this is my little sacrifice to protest the war. 
Uh, now you're my responsibility, so you're going to come stay with me and the kids for a while. And little Dave and Linda both say at the same time, no! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Marty's like, I got to go get some air. This is kind of overwhelming. So he goes outside and uh, hears someone whispering. Uh, after looking at – he has a, a, a picture of himself and Jennifer and – the the Marty in the picture has they, they both have deep shadows like long shadows in the picture okay. and his shadow is disappearing. Of course, I don't know why it's the shadow and not him, but for some reason it's the shadow in in the screenplay that's disappearing. Um, He's slowly becoming Eric Stoltz. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. Uh, so so he goes over to Doc, who's like in the bushes, and Doc's like uh, at the police station. I I, I saw the newspaper. But at the police station, there's only Lorraine Page or Bill Bale. I went to her house, but a neighbor said she would be at her parents. They can't do this to you, Marty. You're a minor. And he's like, yeah, well, I can't prove it. And these clothes you gave me didn't help uh, because they thought I was a hippie. And he's like, sorry, I guess spending the 60s on a college campus warped my perception a little bit. Did you at least get the book away from Biff? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, and you destroyed it. And then Marty dodges the question. He says, well, there's a bigger problem. And Doc says, bigger than Mr. Fusion being non-functional. And Marty's like, get out of town. And he's like, and the replacement parts won't be invented until the next century. What's your problem? And he goes, I sort of jeopardized my conception again. <laughs> and, and Marty goes, my, or Doc goes, I know history repeats itself, but are you sure? And he's like, yeah, they're supposed to go to San Francisco Friday night to celebrate their anniversary. And that's when they, well, you know... Doc says, engage in biological reproductive mating behavior. And Marty says, right. And now that Lorraine paid my $500 bail, she can't afford to go. She's like, look, my shadow's disappearing. And Doc says, great, Scott. Lorraine comes out. He's like, Marty, is everything all right? I heard voices. And Marty's like, oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just, you know, getting in touch with my inner spiritual selfness. And uh, I'll be done in a few minutes. And then he starts meditating by going, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. <laughs> this is an ongoing joke where he says words as chants. That are, um, that are yeah. Uh, yeah, as meditating. Uh, he gets, yeah, he does, it, he does it several times in this draft. Oh, good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so the first one is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, and then uh, Doc says, well... We got to give her $500. And he's like, Marty says, she won't take it. Her mother offered. Uh, I even offered to go back to jail. She won't do it. And I can't even plead guilty without providing some form of ID. And Doc's like, well, if we had a week, we might be able to manufacture some fake ID. And Marty says, we've got 48 hours. Is there some way we could get my trial moved up? I mean, doesn't the Constitution guarantee me the right to a speedy trial? And Doc says, Marty, I can make a time machine work. I can make a fusion generator work, but even I can't make the American justice system work. Boom. <laughs> For now, stick with your mother. I'll be in touch later. We'll figure something out. And Marty what a, says, kind of an uncharacteristically political statement from Doc. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, he said the thing about lawyers. In That's the second true. One. Yeah. I hate him, Marty. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a thing about the justice system. Um, but uh, yeah, so then that uh, that takes us to the McFly house where Lorraine uh, has brought Marty home with her. And she, she says, uh, she says, you know, you remind me of somebody I knew very briefly back in high school. His name was Marty, too. And Marty says, and I remind you of him. 
And Lorraine says, yeah, he was very mature and real cute. Of course, he was a little taller than you. Marty's like, I'm sure he was. Um, <laughs> and that's the last they mentioned. They, that's the last they mentioned that. God uh, damn sure he was. Yeah. And uh, so then Lorraine's like, Lorraine's calling the uh, the hotel. And she's like, I'd like to cancel hotel reservation for this weekend. And then someone's crying from off screen. And Lorraine says, every time I'm on the phone, she starts crying. And Marty's like, I'll handle the call. You take care of Linda. She's like, thanks. You're a lifesaver. And Marty says, I'm trying. (laughs) Marty gets on the phone. He's like, yeah, this is Mr. McFly. We want to hold that reservation after all. Uh, Sure, I'm sure. I I stake my life life on it. And then later in the night. Uh, Marty is reading a newspaper, the newspaper article about himself. Next to it is an article that says farmer and wife see flying saucer, both under observation in mental ward. Aww. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, there's a rap at the window. Marty looks up. It's Doc. He opens the window. They speak in whispers and Doc is like, can you talk? Is everyone asleep? And he's like, yeah, come in. So M- M- Doc climbs into the room and Marty realizes that his knapsack is lying open and the almanac is exposed. And so he's trying to close it throughout this conversation. He's trying to close it without drawing Doc's attention. And uh, he says okay, – Doc says, OK, I think I've solved our problem. The trick is to give your mother the money under the circumstances in which she can accept it without feeling guilty. Now, what if she received the $500 as a gift, an anniversary gift? Doc says, I picked up an anniversary card. Do you have any – uh, do you have any relatives uh, who would give her that money? And Mark's like, uh, Marty's like, Mark, 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 Marty's like, no, they're all a bunch of cheapskates. <laughs> None of them would give my folks $500 as an anniversary present. And Doc's like, think, Marty, you must have one rich, eccentric uncle from out of town. Everyone does. And Marty goes, do you? And Doc shrugs and says, I am one. <laughs> <laughs> and Marty's like, well, my uncle Mickey from Missouri used to give me $50 every year on my birthday and I never met the guy. And, uh, and they're like, perfect. So then they write love uncle Marty and, uh, put the $500 in and doc says, I'll run this over to the post office and it'll be delivered in tomorrow's mail. And then another wrap on a different window. And Marty turns to see doc from 1967. Oh, Oh, okay. Also read the newspaper and showed up. Okay. <laughs> and the young, this younger doc is dressed like a cross between an Indian guru, a rock star, and a scientist. Oh, my God. And he says, oh, my God, doc, it's you. I mean, you of 1967. He must have seen the newspaper, recognized me, and tracked me down. Doc says, of course he did. He's a genius, just like me. He is me. Doc hides behind a couch, and he says, but don't let him see me. Don't even let him know I'm here. And Marty says, then should I just blow him off? Doc says, no, we need him. The you only know, way be super I, rude to me. <laughs> the only way I can repair the time machine is to use his lab. Uh, and Marty's like, okay, let me see what I can do. Jeez, look what you're wearing. And uh, he opens the window and... Marty! 67, yeah, Marty, it is you. I knew it. Good to see you. It's been 12 years. What brings you to 1967? Marty says, it's sort of a long story, Doc. He's like, wait, don't tell me. Having too much knowledge of the future events can be extremely dangerous. I remember that from 1955. Marty says, right. Well, the bottom line is that we need to get the time machine over to your lab so that he, we, I mean, you can repair it. 
67 Doc says, you want me to repair it? Uh, and uh, he's like, yes, I don't uh, know. And meanwhile, like the other Doc is behind the couch, like whispering stuff at Marty. He's like, not him, me. 67 is like, 67 Doc's like, what's what's the problem? He's like, uh, nothing. I'm just a little confused. What are they, what are they, what are they the character names in the screenplay? Doc and 67 Doc. Okay, cool. Yeah. And uh, 67 Doc says, no, I mean, with the time machine. And Marty's like, well, it doesn't fly properly. And uh, Doc Doc says, don't tell him that. And 67 <laughs> Doc goes, it flies far out. <laughs> and Marty says, yeah, and Mr. Fusion shot too. And 67 is like, who got shot? Doc says, tell him he need, we need a power source. Marty says, what, Doc? 67 Doc says, this is Mr. Fusion. Does he need medical attention? Another <laughs> Doc says, get over here. <laughs> Marty goes over to 85 Doc and he's like, tell him we need a power source for the flux capacitor. Marty says, we need a power source for the flux capacitor. 67 Doc says, you mean to generate 1.21 gigawatts of electrical energy again? And Marty says, Doc says, precisely. And Marty says, precisely. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and 67's like, great, great, Scott, I don't suppose you know about any upcoming lightning storms. And Marty says, sorry. And he's like, so where is the time machine now? Doc says, tell him to go home and you'll bring it over to the lab. Uh, and so Marty tells him that. And he's like, well, I suppose that makes sense. But what about poor Mr. Fusion? And Marty says, Mr. Fusion's history, Doc. And 67 Doc says, history? Why, of course, future history. This will all make sense to me sometime in the future. I have to remember to think fourth dimensionally uh, to get into the groove of this continuum. And Marty says, Doc, please go home. <laughs> and 67 Doc says, very well, Marty. Hasta luego. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, and he leaves and bumps his head uh, as he goes out, and both docs feel it at the same time because that's a that's a thing in this draft, of course. Uh, and he's like, he go he he uh, eighty five doc is still rubbing his head, and he goes, gosh, I sure hope he doesn't fall into any open manholes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then we hear a uh, departing motorcycle. And Marty looks out the window and he's like, Doc, you never told me you used to tool around on a Harley. And Doc says, oh, God, am I wearing a helmet? Marty says, no. And he's like, damn, I was crazy in those days. days." (laughs) He's like, these days? Damn those pronouns. And uh, uh, so, okay, so then this one, this one I'm, this one I'm a little confused about. Okay, so he said, Lorraine says, Marty, are you talking to someone? And Marty's like, no, I'm just meditating again. And then he says, Da do ron ron on da do, yeah. What is that? So that's like a doo wop song. Oh, is that right? Yeah, do do ran do. Oh, it's like one okay. of those songs that, like, even you hear it, you're like, oh, that song, but like, no one knows what it's called or who sings it. Oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Um, so yeah, that one, that one, I didn't recognize by the by the words or the sounds. I don't know. Sure. Uh, so. Uh, Doc takes the anniversary card and uh, leaves. Marty looks at the photo. His shadow's now gone. Um, and uh, the DeLorean pulls up to the post office. And uh, let's see here. Yeah. So the, the – yeah. So he's so driving up, before, around in the DeLorean? Yeah. So he's driving around in the DeLorean. This is the middle of the night though. Oh, okay. Um, pulls up to the post office. Hops out, mails the anniversary card. I assume in like a like a mailbox kind of deal. Of course. Um, then he goes to Doc's garage, pulls up in the DMC. 
There's a large psychedelic painted panel truck with E. Brown Enterprises stenciled on it uh, and the Harley motorcycle. And the 67 Doc is like studying the old plans of the 1955 lightning bolt setups, like the old town model. He's like checking it out. Okay. And here's the car engine outside and his sleeping dog, Newton. Remember we had this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. We wondered who his dog was in this. So it's Newton. Okay. Yeah. Say what kind of dog it is. This is very important. It does not say. God damn it. It just says he wakes up and barks. Okay. Uh, And the 67 Doc pushes the garage door opener, the door parts, and uh, he sees the DeLorean. And then there's a little funny bit where 67 Doc is walking around the DeLorean going, Marty, 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 hello, Marty. Marty. And uh, 85 Doc is having to like crouch and hide. Like, so they're just like circling the DeLorean together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then he... Then 67 Doc gets in the DeLorean, pulls into the garage, and 85 Doc uh, gets out of there. And that's where we'll end today. Great stuff. Yeah. There's some, there's some fun st- – I, I, it's, it's interesting because the $500 thing is interesting because it's just like – I don't know. It's, it's funny that it's all coming from like a sense of Lorraine's um, – uh, pride, I guess. Yeah, I just—it's interesting how, how like her pride is the problem here. Yeah, and I guess I'm just really interested in how this is much more of a uh, kind of a, a, a character comedy, much in the way of the first one, mm-hmm. whereas and the like, third one and the third one, whereas the second one is much more of like an actiony like plot adventure, plot thing. adventure, and I, yeah. I, I kind of I kind of miss. I mean, I'm sure this version would have had its own problems, but I'm I I, I kind of miss I'm just, I'm nostalgic for this film's kind of focus on character driven comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, so yeah, so there's some good stuff in there. I think uh, some fun stuff. I I will say that it is um, the new stuff is really good. The repetitive stuff is a bit much. Like like that she's having dinner at her parents yeah you know there being another photograph right yeah so there's there's some repetitive stuff that i'm not crazy about but i do like you said i do really like the character centric comedy for sure i think that's really good uh so let's talk some emails shall we yeah why not okay uh so our first email comes from bill and this was sent in because he wanted to talk about he he wanted to talk more about the uh the tunnel fan theory which is apparently a an ongoing fan theory i think we mentioned this in passing when we got to it but the idea of like how the hell did doc know when and where to pick marty up as he was going through the tunnel mm-hmm. and we talked about how uh maybe a marty was killed and and doc actually went back in time to fix it sure took took a couple of tries Right, took a couple of tries. Um, so we talked about that uh, a little bit, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering: Do you think maybe that's why, just in general, Marty is as lucky as he is? Yeah, you know, he, he kind of he it's like he has a guardian angel looking out for him. Yeah, that has the how ability many, to travel back how, in time. How many Martys do you think Doc has gone through at this point? Probably like thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. <laughs> 
Fair enough. Um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because it, it's especially interesting because, you know, the whole story is told from Marty's perspective. So who many, who knows how many Marty's, if that's true, who knows how many Marty's we've met? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, of that. Well, it reminds me of two things. A, it reminds me of that beautiful model, uh, that beautiful montage in, uh, in uh, the Venture Brothers where you just see like, time after time where like both brothers were like murdered or like yeah. killed. Um, and then also it kind of reminds me of, you know, that there's a theory in star Trek that every time a, um, anytime that the uh, characters are beamed up, that those people are actually like incinerated. Right. And that when they appear back on the enterprise, it's actually a new Kirk and a new Spock and so on. Right. They're like cloned. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. What movie was that conversation had on? I feel like it was like a Kevin Smith movie or something. I don't think so. I don't think they ever talk about Star Trek and Kevin Smith movies. Okay. Yeah. Plenty of Star Wars and, and Superman, but mm-hmm. I don't think Star Trek. I'm not sure where that's in, but but uh, that's always horrified me about the uh, prospect of uh, teleporting. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of talked about that uh, when it happened. Um, I don't really have a whole lot to add to that uh, that bit. Although it's interesting, I didn't know that it was a ongoing fan theory, so that's kind of interesting. But, mm-hmm. um, and Hill Valley Preservation Society uh, talks. She talks. She talks about um, a sort of like uh like a dream she had that involved time travel and then asks uh has this show led to any crazy dreams about time travel scott um honestly i don't i don't remember a lot of my dreams like for the most part i have pretty um like empty sleep you know and then once a month or so I'll have one really vivid dream. Sure. Um, but I don't, uh, it's not often. Yeah. So of I can't, you and, I, of you and Bethany in a, in a city all by yourself where it feels like decades. And then eventually you uh, get run over <laughs> by a train. Yeah, exactly. Um, or wake up in another dream. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I can't think of an example of a time. I'm sure I've dreamed about time travel before. Yeah, I don't really have any time travel dreams. I think we think enough about time travel, you and I, when we're awake. Um, yeah. My dreams are actually usually pretty pedestrian. Um, like, you know, it's like, oh, I, I'm, I have this reoccurring dream where um, I'm, I'm back in school and it's like the end of the semester and I just realized that there is one class that I just forgot about and I've never gone to. <laughs> I've done that in real life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't think of, I'm sure I have, I'm sure I have. At yeah, some but none point. that have, none that have stood the test of time. Well, you know, they, they say that, um, by the time you wake up, you've already forgotten like 70% of a dream. Right. Right. So, uh, yeah, you, I mean, uh, have you ever ex- experimented with, uh, with lucid dreaming, Scott? Mm, I don't, what is that? What like specifically what, uh, like lucid dreaming is when you are dreaming, but you're also aware that it's a dream 
and you can like control the physics of the dream because your subconscious is aware that everything around you is just a uh, an illusion. I think so. Yeah. Cool. Pretty sure I've done that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Man, imagine a imagine a, a universe where instead of time travel, uh, Doc Brown was obsessed with like biocentrism and like the like, <laughs> the, the the manipulation of consciousness. And just the whole trilogy is like way more trippy. <laughs> uh wait till we get to tomorrow um uh anyway yeah i i don't i don't i can't remember any any time travel dreams sorry Um, i wish yeah i know i wish i had a good a good one but i can't uh i can't think of anything yeah we commit so much of our of our of our waking consciousness to time travel you and i that i guess it makes sense that our like subconscious like needs a break from it when we're dreaming yeah probably uh anyway so those are the uh, those are the two emails that we'll talk about. So thanks thanks to them for sending those in, and uh, we'll have uh, we we still have uh, we have more emails, more sixty seven draft uh, to talk about uh, tomorrow and Wednesday. Uh, but in the meantime, you can go to our website duelinggenre.com. You can leave comments, talk about uh, the sixty seven draft or any of the credits we talked about, or Dreams. maybe you have a dream yeah. that involves time travel. Um, you can post that on the post of this episode and check out our other podcasts while they're, you're there, like The Doctor's Companion, Geek by Night. Uh, and, you know, lately I've been uh, slacking on uh, our Facebook page. We have, we have our Facebook group, uh, Hill Valley Preservation Society – or sorry, Hill Valley Listener Preservation Society, um, which I love so much. And it's really great because it's self-sustaining. Uh but I've been really bad about like posting on Tumblr and stuff lately. Um, but I've uh, I've started making up for that. Uh, so like the other day, I just started like back posting all of our uh, all of our part two episodes. I realized I stopped posting on Tumblr around minute ten of part two. Uh, so I had a lot of catch up work to do. So I've just been uh, I've just been uh, setting those like in into my Tumblr queue mm-hmm. for the for the tumblr for a while so trying to get better at the tumblr thing it's just it's it's time consuming and i've been busy but um we're gonna we're gonna catch that up and uh hopefully we'll get some we'll get some good discussion on the tumblr yeah, from interesting all to that. see what happens with the the preservation society and the tumblr during the hiatus yeah because so sure. many people are still like catching up with the show you know it'll right. be to see what kind of discussion well, I think I would hope that at oh. least with the uh, with, with the Listener Preservation Society, I'm going to start doing posts on Tumblr about No Roads Edition too. But I'm hoping that uh, that becomes sort of like the main discussion stuff, I guess. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. It'll be interesting. Uh, but yeah, so so go check out. Speaking of the No Roads Edition, check out duelinggenre.com/support, where if you become a patron supporter. Uh, Patreon supporter of $5 or more, you can gain access to all of the exclusive content uh, that we do on our Patreon, every single thing that we do. And we, we post we post something like, I don't know, six to eight things, I think, a month uh, exclusive to Patreon. Uh, so go, go check that out and you get all of it for $5, including the weekly No Roads edition that uh, Nick and I do, and uh, what, what what do we do on that show? We do uh, we talk about sort of like general Back to the Future stuff. We do 
Uh, we do like a pick three that's like themed around Back to the Future. We've been working our way through Robert Zemeckis's filmography. Yeah, we have really fun like alternate universe or like alternate casting what if discussions. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we just did a couple of weeks ago. We did uh, like a crossover thing where we talked. We picked. We each picked three. Uh, other franchises uh, that we would theoretically uh, want to see Back to the Future crossover with. Um, so, Sleeping yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Right. Magic Mike XXL. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so go check that out. The, the, the entire the entire canon of Stephen King. Right. Yeah. So go go check that out. Uh, and and they're each each episode each No Roads edition has been um, at least an hour, and the past few have been longer than an hour. So. Yeah. Uh, so it's well worth well worth your time, and uh, yeah. So check that out. And I don't know. I I could also see us maybe um, uh, doing more not writings during the hiatus. Oh, I'm sure. Well, yeah. We you, we we both know that vacation is an illusion for us. Right. Exactly. So we might even amp those up. Usually we've been doing them once a month, but we could maybe we'll do it like two or three times a month or something. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, we'll we'll definitely make it worth your while. And uh, it's the only place that you're going to be able to hear from us during the hiatus. So go check that out at uh, duelinggenre.com slash support. Special thanks to our Patreon associate producer, Leaper182. And we will be back tomorrow with Minute 107.